the Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. That's where we are, that's where I work. Not for much longer though, actually. I'm going to be moving to Monash University pretty soon. And my guest today is from Monash University. He's Associate Professor Seamus O'Hanlon. He's a historian in a school with a really long title at Monash University. And amongst other publications, he's just put out a book called City Life, A New Urban Australia. Welcome Seamus. Thank you, thanks for having me. So what inspired City Life, the work here? Um, I'm I was actually thinking about this the other day because I'm giving a, another talk about this next week. It has a long gestation, books always do. But uh, it's, I was thinking about it, I thought it's early, sometime in the early 2000s, I was um, finished my PhD and I just published my first book, uh, just called Together Apart, which is about boarding houses and flats Flat and Australia. that sort of yeah. stuff. And looking for a new project, as you do. And uh, I'd also just become a father at that stage. So I was reminiscing with my brother and with some friends about the world that we grew up in and the world that my son would grow up in. And we were talking about how you could live in Australia or London or Berlin, as a lot of us did at that time, in your 20s with no job and studying and all that sort of stuff. And live quite well, you know. Mm -hmm. the cities were cheap. It was, it was quite cheap to live in the inner city. You could afford to rent. You could afford to go out. You could have a good time and, and what have you. And um, you know, contrasting that with the, the world that my son was likely to grow up in, and that we were living in at that stage, and I, you know, got to be thinking that actually it's a different historical period, and. You know, not only was I historicising the 1970s and the 1980s in doing that and thinking about it, I was historicising myself, of course, as well. And so I began to think about how, you know, why was the city so cheap? Why was it easy to live in the inner cities uh, around the world at that time? And so I started to look around and I got interested in deindustrialisation. Um, which is a whole world that I really didn't know a whole lot about, but there's a gigantic literature on deindustrializing the city and uh, deindustrializing economies and stuff, which I'd lived through. You know, there's no question I'd lived through it. But um, the world that I was living in in the inner city was the sort of a, a good outcome of that because it was cheap and it was. You know, and the, whereas if you were older and you'd lost your job and the city was falling apart around you, so I started reading about this and. Um, uh, I began to get more and more concerned about the literature around deindustrialization, especially, and it says also the post-industrial city. The post-industrialists seemed to me to be all boosters who were talking about creativity and... How you take a factory and turn it into a cafe? An art gallery. gallery, And and there was all this, you know, no no names, no pack drill, but there was all this type of edginess and innovation and creativity indexes and all this sort of stuff. And I thought, yeah, yeah, there is sort of that sort of stuff, but there, you know, there's a darker side to this. 
And then there was the people who were writing about gentrification who seemed to have no nothing good to say about gentrification. They're going, I thought, yeah. But then the other side was a lot of people who wrote about deindustrialisation and it was just all gloom and doom. It's like, you know, the world ended in 1981 and, you know, Thatcher was the, uh, you know, the she-devil and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, it, I agree with much of this sort of stuff. But it seems to me there was a deindustrialised city and there was a post-industrial city. And as a historian, I became quite fascinated in the process of how you get from one to another. And I also began to read, you know, Sharon Zukin. I yes. began to read a lot yeah, of her work. Yeah. Like and I became, became quite fascinated with the idea of culture mm-hmm. and the, the new inner city, but also how the, the collapse of the old inner city left spaces. For, for the new inner city. Yeah. And you know, based on the other work I've done on flats and various other things over the years, I've always been fascinated in the physical outcomes of historical change. Mm. And so what I thought I would do, and what I thought I would do with this book and the book I wrote before, Melbourne Remade, is around that idea about how you can tell the story of really quite important global historical changes around deindustrialisation, globalisation, the emergence of the post-industrial economy, the emergence of Asia, China and all that sort of stuff. How you can actually tell that by looking at the physical. Looking at specific places. Yeah. So one, the thread, one of the threads in your book is globalisation and by that it's globalisation but also how governments choose to interact with globalisation yep. and how that plays out in specific places differently. And For example, you have a chapter where you look at the effects of restructuring and decline in manufacturing in somewhere like Fitzroy versus Broadmeadows yep. or Elizabeth in Adelaide. Yeah. And the important point about somewhere like Fitzroy, as compared to Elizabeth or Broadmeadows, is that Fitzroy had, it was mostly small scale. The original manufacturing was quite small scale, even though, that, you know, in, in terms of Fitzroy streetscape, some of these quite large factories, you know, like Robertson's and Fawn Gibson and things like that, they're nothing like the scale of the, you know, the, the Ford factory in Broadmeadows or General Motors in Dandenong or General Motors in Elizabeth. And so they're adaptable. Whereas those big, those places that were built in the 1950s and 60s were vast and they were built to the scale of the car and the truck. And it sort of struck me as I was writing about it, is how you adapt those. You know, it's reasonably easy to adapt the inner city. And so, again, the point about the, the, the big globalised, big global issues and how they play out locally seem to me important. There's a, around the time I'm writing this as well, a bit before, there's an emerging stream which is called global history. And it's... um, What does that refer to, global history? Well, it's an outcome of globalisation. People often talk about history. What we write about in history reflects the present as much as the past. And global history is often about... um, uh, commodity chains. It's about movement across the Silk Roads, about trade in the sort of 17th, 18th, 19th centuries and, and all this sort of stuff. And it's, it's, it's interesting stuff, it's, it's fascinating stuff, but it's massive. Mm. And what really struck me is that it, in some ways it's a return to sort of history from above. It's about what governments do, what traders do, what big companies do, etc. And not so much about how this plays out in particular places. But then more recently, over the last three or four years, I've been involved with a group, which is called, maybe two years, called the Global Urban History Project. And what we're trying to do is marry the two. So urban history has always been very good at um, 
telling local stories. And it's been very good about how you can see technological change, etc. That's in the global that plays out locally. But what global urban history is trying to do is marry the two. So there's some really, really good stuff coming out around port cities, especially, and about how these big commodity chains, these big trading links throughout history, play out in these really quite fascinating cities on the edges of oceans and the, on rivers, etc. So there's a really good book I, I, I read last year by a woman by the name of Sulin Lewis, which is called Cities in Motion. It looks at Penang and uh, uh, Bangkok, I think it is, and the third one is um, Burma, what's it? Uh, Rangoon. But yeah, again, really interesting stuff about how you have these, these communities there, these trading communities, you have these buyers and sellers, and you know, the old idea of the entrepot. And so, you know, as I was writing this, as I was doing this research, this book, I was thinking, actually, Melbourne and Sydney are entrepots again. They were in the 19th century. But they're different. I mean, one of the things you talk about, or one of the commodities, so to speak, you talk about is the international student. Absolutely. Would you like to expand on um, The international student one is really quite fascinating because, you know, they didn't exist a generation ago. They simply did not exist. Um, I write about how in... It was a decision in 1985, I think it was, by the whole global government to open up the market to international students. There'd been the Colombo Plain students before that. And there was a few of them in the, in the 1980s, early 1990s, there was a few thousand. There's, there's now half, over half a million. And most of them are in Melbourne and Sydney, and most of them are in the centre of Melbourne and Sydney. And, and again, not only are they changing the universities in all sorts of ways, they're also changing the culture of the city. But again, as with my earlier work, they're changing the physical fabric of the city. So, so where we're sitting here at RMIT, just across the road from us, is essentially this gigantic student village is being built. Yeah, if you sit, uh, we're in a slightly more hedged-in building now, but if you're on the Swanson Street buildings, every day you become more and more aware of this uh, physical expanse of, of the student accommodation and the apartments that are built mainly for students yeah, and, yeah student village yeah and the interesting thing it, it's here but and, and in the sort of that corridor up to melbourne uni and you see it in sydney around um, broadway and uh, uts etc is this used to be the heartland of the textile clothing and footwear industries and they're gone you know they were wiped out by globalization and tariff changes etc and there was a lull a few years where they, these places basically sat empty. I mean, when I was studying at Melbourne Uni in the late 1980s, that walk between here and Melbourne Uni was a ghost town. It's like kicking a can down the street. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now it's just wall-to-wall student accommodation and all the facilities that have been created for those students, the restaurants and bars and, you know, and the, you know, we all look at working universities now that have libraries that look more like cafes than libraries that we remember. Because it's an industry, it's an enormous industry. And, you know, I've been writing about here, but this is huge in other cities. Well, England now, it's one of the major employers in many, many provincial cities, is the student accommodation. If you take yourself off to parts of the United States, it's just emerging. Canada's the same. And so the international student industry is one of those, or the international student education is one of those industries that simply did not exist you know, we think about computing and we think about mobile phones and apps and stuff as being the, the post-industrial industries or, or finance, etc. International, and uh, along with tourism, international education is a new industry of the 20th, late 19th, late 20th, early 21st century. Mm-hmm.
after I read your book, I read a book called The Land Before Avocados, which is about sort of more a, a reminiscence about growing up when mm. you put avocados on toast and how this is unbelievable to... Yeah. I'm not that old, so I don't remember the 70s. Well, I don't remember Melbourne in the 70s. I was in it, living in Adelaide. I grew up in Adelaide at that time in the 70s. But I came to live in Melbourne in the mid-1980s via London and Berlin and various other places like that. Um, it, yeah, it was empty. Uh, and then I remember distinctly the early 90s recession, you know, which is officially the last recession we had in, in Australia, which hit Melbourne really, really hard. Yeah, people you know. went... I mean. We had a bigger manufacturing base to lose, I suppose, as part yep. of it. People were actually physically leaving to, yep. to Queensland. Yeah, uh, the population of Victoria was declining in the mid-1980s. It's now gone up by about 70%. Melbourne's population went up by 70% or something in that time. But the there were whole areas of the inner city and the inner suburbs which was just basically empty. You know, they were gentrifying, and so you had gentrified housing but the, the factories were basically empty or being used for storage facilities, etc. And they emerged in the early 1990s as um, loft living or factory, you know, what we call warehouse accommodation, etc. And so that started to fill up. You also had, um, you know, from the 1970s onwards, you began to get the, the sort of the street culture that Melbourne's famous for. So Ligon Street's often seen as the first, uh, sort of first trendy street. And uh, that moves, that keeps on moving, uh, Brunswick Street and Smith Street and various other places. But what you get with the factory changes is, is it's often the less fashionable ends of those streets. So because the factories were at the other end of them, and you know, away from the shops and stuff. And so you get to bars and what have you, have you. I lived in Fitzroy and I was writing my PhD, which was in the late 1990s. And um, Smith Street was undergoing profound change at that time, as you say. It was, it was, it was Junkieville, that was when the, uh, there was a lot of uh, heroin coming in from Afghanistan, so people were... So that's another kind of um, global history kind of... Oh, absolutely. Kind of the trade. commodity chain of opium is, yeah. is really quite fascinating. But it was really um, uh, tough. But what I... Th 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 there's a book by Neil Smith, which you may know, the, um, the New Urban Frontier, I think it's called, and he would talk about blockbusting. He would talk about how the, you, know, you didn't want to be the first gentrifier across the, the block, but you don't want to be the last. And I was I basically watched Gertrude Street transform over about a three or four year period at this time. And you know, it w literally was. It was like one block at a time that, mm. that, that they'd moved to the next one. And so again, this, these, these ideas were bubbling up at the time. But the other thing I'd done when I'd moved to Melbourne in the late 1980s is I got a job in a bottle shop in uh, Bridge Road in Richmond. Yeah. And I was a delivery driver for, for, for a number of years when I was um, studying. But yeah, I, I basically watched Bridge Road transform. It was Greek when I moved in there and it was mostly closed up, but it was Greek. And by the time I finished working there, which was probably 1990 or something, it was just wall-to-wall -wall outlet shops. And, and now they're all gone again. And like, as I take myself down Bridge Road and nowadays, it's mostly, what is there now? Well, mostly empty. It's the abandoned shops. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of apartments being built there. And they yeah. had some, a crane fall over there. They did. And that's the, that was the old Herbert King funeral parlour, which we, was right out the back of where I worked. And again, the, the, the historian in me became, um, is rather dissatisfied with a lot of the sort of the the social science literature around this sort of stuff because by definition social science tends to capture a moment and 
one of the things I wanted to do in my writing on this is actually talk about the processes of change, which is not to excuse greed and it's not to excuse the, the displacement and that sort of stuff, but it is talking about how these things have lives before, during and after, mm-hmm. and capturing that. Important. One of the things you spoke about in terms of the, uh, say, Bridge Road or um, inner city and that, that it used to be Greek and so on, but this rebranding, I guess, of the lifestyle stuff of the inner city and how often, ironically, I'm not sure you use the word irony, but there's an element to it, that that uh, branding of Ligon Street as Italian, for example, happened pretty much after there weren't any Italians living yeah, there anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I write about this, how in the 1970s especially, that it's partly related to policies around multiculturalism. You know, it became important to be different and to, to stress difference. But uh, all these festivals that we have across Australia now are partly a reflection of that. They're often ethnic festivals, but they're also branding exercises. And they're often about how a street has to give itself a brand to differentiate itself, and so uh, there's. A, uh, I talk about later on to I, I'm, uh, to misquote Eric Hobsbawm, who talks about invented traditions. You know, a lot of these festivals we have, and a lot of the uh, festivals around streets and places, they're they're all invented in the 1980s as a way of reviving or creating new industries around fun. Etc. So, you know, we think of these things as having. You know, it's the, the, the Boxing Day test is one. People talk about the traditional Boxing Day. Yeah, it was invented mean? sometime in the late 1970s. Oh. Yeah, and which is now 40 years. So, 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 but for a while there in the 1980s, it became the Boxing Day One Day game as well. Right. But in, in Melbourne, especially because, as you said, it was the centre of the clothing, textile, and footwear industry and manufacturing. There was this deliberate policy, deliberate government policy, to reinvent the inner city. Partly through sports, partly through his culture. Culture, sport, Mm -hmm. uh, the comedy festival, writers' festivals, fashion festivals, all those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, it's about getting people into the city, reviving the city, giving a sense of pizzazz, Mm. getting tourists in. I was walked up from the station a few hours ago, Flinders Street Station, the Australian Open's on. The Australian Open. There are so many tourists. Yeah. And was essentially invent or reinvented in yeah, the late 1980s. Yeah, that was fascinating. And I was thinking from the point of view of the um, heat, because um, one of the, the recurrent debates around the Australian Open is, you know, it's held in the late January, where you're guaranteed to be really hot. But it used to be in November in Kuyong, is that right? December. December, November, December right. in Kuyong, yeah. And it rained. Yeah. Invariably <laughs> it rained. And so it, but it was also then the last Open of the... The, the year. So they want to be the first open up. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So they're not going to move it no matter how hot it gets, no matter what climate change it does. Too much because, to say. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, people, if you can't win it, you don't come. So, but if you, if, you, if you can't win the um, Grand Slam. So if you want to win the Grand Slam, you have to be here. There's no question about it. Mm. Yeah. And so the whole of Melbourne Park, all that area was built specifically to make sure it stayed. by from a kind of cultural perspective or from the point of view of gentrification but you speak about the music live music as an industry or arts as an industry and that perilous relationship they have between the economy space they need space yeah. to do these things but often success means you know that yeah. 
there's no room for you anymore. So. You're just on the move all the time. Yeah, just, I thought you look, you brought a time dimension to that. that yeah, yeah. It's, um, again, th- this is reflecting my own sort of story. I mean, I was living in St Kilda in the late 1980s and I you know, used to come over to Melbourne earlier than that and there were just all these venues, all these pubs in St Kilda and Fitzroy and they'd been in Carlton and places like that. And um, the dining rooms, they were often the dining rooms of old pubs mm. and they were pretty much redundant. What to do with them? Well, stick a band in them. And that's what people did. And they were living nearby, you had a ready-made audience, etc. But as they became more successful, there was the issue of the um, neighbours complaining and the gentrifying neighbours complaining. But there was also, you know, this in some ways this is very much a Melbourne thing because we didn't have poker machines. Yep. And, um, you need to put something in there. Yep. You can't put poker machines in there. Yeah, and so to generate an income. And then when poker machines... I mean, Sydney, the poker machines were in clubs, so they always had a very different scene. Uh, but uh, when the poker machines came, they, they generate far more income than does a band. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the other thing that's quite fascinating about that, the whole music scene, etc., is that it's one, another one of those things that governments are desperate to get their hands on, to say, look at us, look at us, aren't we great? We're a music industry. In another project I'm working on, it's around that. It's what makes a city a music city. Mm. And uh, governments want to know because they want to be able to do it. Without spending any money. Without spending any money. But there's, you know, this, I'm going to sound like a libertarian or a Thatcherite here when I say this, but often the worst thing that can happen is for governments to get involved because yeah. they make a mess of it. You know, they, they want it, they bureaucratise everything, they have to. Well, Whereas if you just leave everyone alone, they'll have fun, it'll be fine. You, this is going on your record, you're right. But I know, <laughs> what, as I'm a musician as well, so <laughs> I know what you mean. You, you, there's a common or rule of thumb thing that as soon as the government's involved in anything about music, then the, the, what comes out is usually just that little bit more shit. <laughs> For example, I mean, it's not in your book, but as an example, there's the whole, there's busking. Busking's a tough gig already, but, you know, there's processes introduced where you had to audition to be a busker yeah, and yeah. it's like oh yeah, yeah. well-intentioned but there's well. also the faustian bargain isn't there I, uh, mm. I, i've talked about this before that when you're young and trying to make your mark your appeal is your anger your outsiderness etc you know when you've been sort of gigging around for 30 years and you still haven't got a decent income then yeah you take a government handout but um, you know, when you, in order to attract a new audience, you have to say something new and. So we, in a, in a sense, we need to. We're in this cycle where we have to produce angry young people because we like the music they make. Yeah, um, well, and they also they, they appeal to their peers. Yeah. But letting, allowing them to have space to do that, is yeah. is the, the really difficult one. And yeah. it probably, I think, as you're alluding to, is trying to governments getting involved is usually less effective than you know the outcome of just an economic downturn and and, and it's secure. I mean you're saying like in the 90s you could live in in Melbourne or Berlin or whatever on a very low or fixed income mm. and and have a decent quality of life which is but I cooked because I was in my 20s and I didn't care mm-hmm. if I was a factory worker it wasn't that way and yeah. I don't know whether I'd be, as someone who's got a family and responsibilities, I'd like to be living that life as well. So it's, it's, it's a difficult one. I was in um, Tokyo just a couple of weeks ago, 
uh, which is fascinating in all sorts of ways. But there's an area called Golden Guy in Shinjuku, and they have these bizarre bars which hold five people. Oh, I have I mean, quite literally five people. Bar, yeah. yeah. And one of the things that struck me, I mean, it's that area was just, it was lawless, but it actually worked. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas I'm sure here, if you had that same area, you'd have to go through so many regulations and what have you. Something, it, one thing would go wrong and then we'd have to have a new regulation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in many ways, Tokyo is Japan's the most regulated society in the world, but in this area, they've done it quite well. Just, yeah, whatever. Mm. Turn a blind eye. So, mm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, we had an, on this podcast, we had an episode where just making uninformed observations about Japanese cities and how they're different to here, and just little things like, for example, you can smoke inside there but not outside. <laughs> <laughs> There's a logic to it, but it's just the reverse logic to what yeah. we've yeah. applied. I mean, you, you were speaking there, Seamus, about as far as being a young person or an aspiring musician or academic in a in a post-industrial city is one thing, but equity is a theme in this book. I mean, who's really... It's not just places that are losing out of these global trends, it's people. Yeah. One of the things that... As I say in the conclusion, that I came to accept that it made no sense for Australia to be protecting industries, manufacturing industries, uh, especially not low-value added ones. And that was tough for me because I grew up in a reasonably poor background and I've seen a lot of trouble that people have been through etc and one of the great disappointments I think in the what we've the processes that we've gone through over the last especially the last 20 years I think since the late 1990s is that there's been enormous wealth created and enormous new products etc have been and ideas have been created and that's been captured by a very small percentage of the population and it seems to me one of the things Australia did really well in the 1980s, in the first half of the 1990s, was to say, yes, we're going to change. We, we, it's going to be hard, it's going to be tough, but we will capture some of that new value and we'll make sure that we don't leave, create an underclass like they did in Thatcher and in Thatcher's Britain and, and Reagan's America. And I fear that's been lost. And uh, I think that's a, a great mistake. I think if we had in, continued to do some really innovative things, if we've supported different groups, um, we could have had a much better outcome than we have. So some lost opportunities, really. A I lot mean, of lost yeah. opportunities. Yeah. yeah, because you have a situation where you know you've got austerity or you know change from outside, and and that presents challenges. But then you've got the Australia of the last few decades, where the level of wealth and success in economic terms, it is immense. Yep. So to then still be talking about um, huge divisions. Yep. And there, there are some spatial divisions as yeah. well. Yeah. One of the other things, if we've got time, I wanted mm. to talk about is that the other huge change we've seen over the time period I'm talking about is how multi- multicultural, yeah, of course. Mm. and especially Sydney and Melbourne have become in that time. And again, the spatial aspects of that are really quite fascinating. Yeah, the, con- the level of migration, yep. where's migration predominantly from? And um, where to? Yeah. And so much of what I write about or have written about in the past is around the inner city. But, you know, um, we have a tendency to write off the outer suburbs as a sort of wastelands and, you know, the economic waste. And some parts of them are. But one of the things that strike me when I visit some of the outer suburbs, of especially Sydney and Melbourne, is just how entrepreneurial they are. You know, these these areas with large 
Vietnamese populations and Chinese populations, African population, Middle Eastern population, etc., are extraordinarily entrepreneurial. Um, and allowing that to come, or allowing that to develop, I think would be one of the great strengths that we could capture again into the, the 21st century. Um, I'm writing about Dandenong at the moment for some a thing I'm doing, an international symposium I'm doing. And again, the government's got involved, the local government, and they've got these structure plans and re revitalising central Dandenong and all that sort of stuff. But, and that's great, that's great. But what's really nice when you go to Dandenong is the Afghani communities and the Indian communities, etc. And allowing those people to basically do what they want to you know, get ahead, I think has is something we should promote. What, what role do you think that the built environment or planners can have in, in that? Again, it's interesting because um, down there they've got these enormous great abandoned factories, etc. So what to do with them is a question. But right in the centre of Dandenong, there's a lot of kind of 1980s, 1990s redevelopment projects. Huge big buildings with huge concrete forecourts and all that sort they of stuff. Those, yeah. With one plant. Yeah, it's a bit like Footscray. When you go to Footscray, yeah. like Footscray was, they attempted to redevelop it in the 1980s. And it's just bland. And all around it are these wonderful African shops and people selling you know, things in the streets and all that sort of And the same through with Denham. So, streetscapes seem to me to be important and having small scale streetscapes where people can just set up shop and do it. Like. And, and again, you don't have to be an immigrant entrepreneur. You can be a young person who's setting up a record shop or a bar or something in, in, in the same sort of way. And, those places are really attractive, I think. I'm not sure that we're, this isn't in, in the book so much, but it's, I'm not sure that those kind of places are being built now. If we think about green, I do some work on greenfield suburbs and how the precinct structure plans work and how the new commercial centres are built, and they tend to be single owners. Yeah. So yeah. There, there are yeah. issues there, I think. Yeah. Um, and another project I'm working, at, I'm working on is, is looking at some of the, the, the brownfield sites in those areas. But, and what's being built to face, tends to face inwards. Hmm. Which is the worst possible thing as well, you know. They they have a supermarket, and often apartments above it, but the shops all face inwards to record an outside. Obviously, is like car park entries and stuff, which I, I know is like dear to your heart. But but yeah, facing those out to the street seems to me to be a really important way of doing this sort of stuff and making them work. Do you think being a historian makes you a libertarian? Because <laughs> I'm hearing this on two fronts. Uh, I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm not a libertarian. Like just, uh, libertarians have got a really bad name. Libertarian yeah, used to be the left, and now it's right, be, right, be, yeah. become the right. But well, yeah. what I mean is, does it make you have a, have a different perspective on the role of policy or government that, yeah. you know, that we can learn from? It may do. It may do. I, the, the, one of the other hats I wear is my Irish background, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and in Ireland they tend to have oh whatever attitude, and I kind of like that. You know, do they have a little saying for it. Uh, well, is yeah, yeah, basically leave it alone, yeah, whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I often tell this story about uh, I went to Ireland, I used to go there quite regularly, but I went there in must have been about 1990, and I, my uncle picked me up from the train station, and I got in the car and put on my seatbelt, and he made me take it off. <laughs> you learned that in England, didn't you? And I said, no, well, you're not wearing it in my car. So well, it was embarrassing. No, because it was, it, was, it, was, it was government rule that they bought it, so I wasn't allowed to do it. Like. <laughs> and in Ireland, a bit like Italy, they park on the footpath or the, you know, wherever they feel like it. So just letting things go is not such a bad thing.
on, I guess, a more serious front, from looking back over the last four, immense changes in Australian cities. So you talk about economic changes, cultural changes. What's the other one? Demographic. Demographic. So immigration, yeah. What can we learn from that? What are the risks we run moving forward? Could you draw a parallel between Broadmeadows and Elizabeth was were urban forms built for the Fordist economy and we've built this yeah, city yeah. for the, yeah. the student economy? What's the risk? I finish in the conclusion to the book, I sort of, I, I, I try not to finish on too pessimistic a note, but I think we've bet the future on property, which, and that's dangerous. Again, with my Irish background, I know all about how dangerous that can be. So I think yeah, unwinding the property bubble is going to be a really difficult task that we have to do. Because again, I'm, you know, unlike some people who are saying, oh, we need a recession, I know who gets hurt in a recession, and it's not those who've made a lot of money, it's those who struggled all the way through. Um, what strikes me again in this other project I'm doing about brownfield sites and the major sort of Fordist brownfield sites is I think as a historian what and as an urban historian especially is what you learn is you need to build flexibility into the built environment. You know um, being able to adapt, being able to reuse the physical fabric of the city is a really important um, thing, skill or whatever, and being able to um, imagine different uses for mm. something. Which cha- is challenging to, to the, I guess, the assumptions of planners sometimes, yep. because they tend to be thinking of an end point, mm. this will be this thing, and then it will be finished, and yeah. really we've had so many lessons in, in that not being the case. But and it's also, isn't it, that a lot of the rhetoric is around the the, the fourth industrial revolution and the jobs of the future have not been invented yet, yet we build these monstrous physical structures for the, for the present. Do we just rebuild them again for the future? You know, again, the, the traditional Australian way was just to jump over them and go to the next... Uh, and leave and, the, the ring decaying yeah, inside. And then do something with it later on. Uh, Ken Jackson, you know, the American historian, often talks, he said that's one of the... the Americans have always done, just keep moving. Mm, the frontier. Yeah. But... Uh, I would, well, it's not built in obsolescence, but it's built in flexibility. But also uh, flexibility in the other way, as I was just talking about before, not being so rigid. This is actually covered in that book, the Avocado book as well. It actually opens by talking about the experiences of someone in Canberra in the 1970s trying to put a, a cafe table outside that cafe yeah. and the federal police arriving. Exactly. Perhaps we have too much, too much authoritarianism. Um, built into our mindset. I mean, this even comes up in my interest in car parking. Mm. Just the obsession with trying to predict it and control it is, is something... And it's almost done like a slide rule, isn't it? There must be 2.46 of these. Yes, precise but inaccurate. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the things that really worked in Melbourne was that comes out of the what's called the Neuenhausen Report from the mid-'80s, mm. where he basically... And again, from a libertarian point of view, he Fair basically enough, so said, just deregulate. Yeah, he said his idea... You know, in fact... His point was um, that all the regulations you have, you're not necessarily achieving your objectives anyway, and you're favouring existing. Yeah, you're benefiting a class who's already doing quite well out of this. Mm. Whereas, you know, let it go. I mean, again, you know as much or yeah. more about this than I do. But again, this idea that yeah, why can't I set up a bar with you know, half a dozen stalls? Why do I need to serve a meal with a, a drink? Why do I need to serve a parking spot with a drink? Yeah, exactly. Example? Yeah. This actually ties in with, with some work I'm doing on um, 
so the new project starting on new city history of new cities in Australia and one of the people who's been involved in that research so far did her PhD that's Lauren I'll give a shout out to her on um, Milton Keynes in yeah UK and what mm. we can learn from them and actually your comments about flexibility are really close to mm. that lesson in Milton Keynes it's often um, spoken of as a as a failed um, new town in some in some fashions or at least it's shorthand for that but one of the features of it is they planned for tech really planned for technology in the sense that they did they left very large cabling areas for yep. example. they didn't know what they'd need to put down there they just thought it would be something yeah no it is important that it's it's, uh, it's difficult to do on a large scale but and it, and it's so i guess it's so dangerously close to the rhetoric of liberalization in that global trade sense and we all know what what that causes sometimes yep. so maybe we have a, a knee-jerk reaction and thinking well someone's going to get hurt here Finish up by maybe commenting on some of the rural urban divide as well, which is covered in your book. Yeah, um, it's interesting. My book's been reviewed uh, in conjunction with Gabriel Chan's book. I saw that, yeah. yeah. Uh, Brendan Gleeson did that, yeah. I very much see myself as a city dweller. And I was having, interestingly, my first job was working in for uh, a stock and station agent. I worked at the cattle market in Adelaide when I left school. So I knew about the country and I go to the country a lot. I'm fascinated by how cities across the world are becoming unmoored from their na- from the nation, from the hinterland. And more moored to other cities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, if you go back to the, the global history stuff I've been doing, that's often what they're talking about, is the link was often out across the water to the next mm-hmm. entrepot on this. And I, I find that fascinating how more and more the cities, big cities around the world have more in common with each other than they do with their, their hinterland. In the book I talk about, I draw on some stuff that Tim Colbatch and others have done, if you look at the 2016 census, you don't need to travel very far out of Melbourne to be in another country. And the other countries, Australia, you know, there are virtually no immigrants outside a ring around Melbourne and Sydney, then there are certainly virtually no immigrants from Asia in that ring outside Melbourne and Sydney. And so what what is considered to be increasingly normal in Melbourne or Sydney is considered very abnormal in, in other parts of the country. The other thing I want to say, so that's one thing, demographically. I can say I agree with you when I go, you know, travel to the country. It is, it is a, a, con- a constant experience of feeling more aware of, I guess, the people around you because there's a crowd and there's the crowd in a regional area is... And that's not so a good or a bad thing. It's, it's just they are almost different countries. It's, very, it's different countries. The other thing about it is that, again, this goes back to what I started out talking about, why I wanted to do this work, is Melbourne and Sydney, and more so Sydney than Melbourne, were big enough and tough enough to handle these changes. Mm. Whereas, and so was London, so was New York, San Francisco, so other, you know, Berlin, all these other big cities. The places that were really hurt were the former industrial centres and the former manufacturing centres. And you do paint the picture of what... I mean, it's quite hard to imagine, actually. Adelaide is a young... Um, yeah. Future... What, what, exciting... A go-ahead city, as yeah, we said. That's right. <laughs> it was like when I grew up there. And it basically stopped. You know, and it stopped sometime in the mid to late 70s. And it 
it ha- hardly has any growth, hardly has any growth. But the same is true of places like Wollongong and Newcastle and Ban- Ballarat and Bendigo. And so, so as their manufacturing industries, and Geelong's the other example, we, you know, we've, one of my students did a PhD on Geelong. And Geelong, you know, you can chart this story. Geelong's going to have new towns built next to it and all this sort of stuff in 1974. And in 1975, it's crisis town. It's all in free fall and it's in collapse. And it really doesn't recover, and it's, it's still it's recovering now. So, so the point there is that the, the big cities were big enough, diverse enough, they were attractive enough, they had uh, depth in order to be able to reinvent themselves after a fair bit of pain. That's not true in the smaller cities, and it's certainly not true in the, the smaller towns, which, you know, again, if you um, compare and contrast Australia to some of the what's happened in other countries, it's much more... Benign. And um, I was lucky enough to travel Route 66 about six or seven years ago. We drove this is the high, old highway yeah, in America. So we drove it the wrong way from rather than going to Chicago to LA. We went to LA to Chicago. But you drive there and there's just ghost towns. Places were just completely abandoned. And they're towns from the 1960s and 70s that have just gone because the highway went the, uh, the, the big. The, Freeways, what are they call the American interstates. Interstates went through, and Walmart came along, and Holiday Inns came along, and the main street's just dead. It just simply just doesn't exist anymore. That's right, yeah. Yeah. We don't have that, and that's partly because Australia's had the welfare state. There's that underpinning. The bottom was protected, not as much as I would have liked it. So, you know, that that's one of the things that I think we probably need to deal with. And you can't just empty out and pack people into the two big cities and think this is going to work. It's not. So finding some way of sharing this prosperity, I think, is one of the things we need to do. So what are the other um, messages or key reasons why you think people should read your book? Or are you naturally an academic and like, read it if you want to, you don't have to, you're totally fine. I've never been that academic. <laughs> uh, I, I came late to academia. And I never wanted to be the academic that was only read and appreciated by other academics. So everything I've ever done, and I, I taught public history for a long time, and everything I've ever done I've tried to be accessible. And one of the things I learned as a public historian from Graham Davison, mostly, is that you can show your scholarship, or you can demonstrate your scholarship, without belting people over the head with it. So I tend to write in layers. So you know, people can read this and they can just get a, a story of change or you can read into it and see more and more. So that's why I think people... Because I, I hope it's readable, I hope it's a good story, but it's also got some depth, I hope. And it leads into, I mean, putting my recommendation in, it does bring a lot of themes together. I guess you're drawing on these different academic traditions to do that, but it brings a lot of themes together. I like the way it picks a few places and that makes it less abstract. So it's a it's easy read and it does have an underpinning of um, you know taking stock and also sort of looking forward without you know being too dry. I might have to edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> it's more it's less angry, <laughs> more contemplative. I don't know. Um, oh, I'm ambivalent about other stuff. I, yeah. I, I I'm open about that. Uh, I think what was done to many of the the places, not just in Australia but around the world, is unacceptable. People were hurt, and they were deliberately hurt, and I think that's unacceptable. But I don't agree with the idea that 
afford it. The economy was wonderful, and we were all working hard in our factories, and weren't we happy? Because there was an awful lot of people missed out yeah. in that. The for all its faults, the post-industrial economy can be much more inclusive than the old industrial economy. But as I say, I think decisions were made, and they're political decisions, they're not economic ones, that basically says we will write off generations and regions, and I think that's wrong. But I, I'm not going to sort of say we should all go back to working in a factory. You know, the whole not Donald Trump idea. Could, no, you couldn't. Yeah. 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 And I don't think it would be good for a lot of people to do so. And perhaps that holding that dream up is, uh, is harmful in itself. Yeah, it's a yeah. false dream. There's no question about it. Yeah. All right. We have been speaking with Seamus O'Hanlon of Monash University. His book, City Life, No Colon, City Life, or is there a colon? The New Urban Australia. I don't know there's a colon. It's not on that. There's no, no capitals either. That's the, the, the people oh. of office. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't pick up on that. It's available from UNSW New South Press. New South publishing the columns, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and, it, and it's one of those, unlike many other books on urban history in Australia, it has a picture on the cover and you can buy it in a regular bookshop for a normal price. So I recommend you do so. You've been listening to This Must Be The Place.